Chapter 19, Part 1 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 22, Chapter 19, Part 1. I fall in love with Christine, and find a husband worthy of her. Christine's wedding. These gondoliers, said the elderly priest, addressing me in order to begin the conversation, are very fortunate. They took us up at the Rialto for thirty soldi, on condition that they be allowed to embark other passengers. And here is one already. They will certainly find more. When I am in a gondola, reverend sir, there is no room left for any more passengers. So saying, I gave forty more soldi to the gondoliers, who were highly pleased with my generosity. Thank me and call me Excellency. The good priest, accepting that title, is truly belonging to me, and treats my pardon for not having addressed me as such. I am not a Venetian nobleman, reverend sir, and I have no right to the title of Excellenza. Ah, says the young lady, I am very glad of it. Well, why so, signora? Because when I find myself near a nobleman, I am afraid. But I suppose that you are an illustrissimo. Not even that, signora. I am only an advocate's clerk. So, so much the better, for I like to be in the company of persons who do not think themselves above me. My father was a farmer, brother of my uncle here, rector of P where I was born and bred. As I am an only daughter, I inherited my father's property after his death, and I shall likewise be heiress to my mother, who has been ill for a long time and cannot live much longer, which causes me a great deal of sorrow, but it is the doctor who says it. Now, to return to my subject, I do not suppose that there is much difference between an advocate's clerk and the daughter of a rich farmer. I only say so for the sake of saying something, for I know very well that, in traveling, one must accept all sorts of companions. Is it not so, uncle? <laughs> yes, my dear Christine, and as a proof, you see that this gentleman has accepted our company without knowing who or what we are. But do you not think I would not have come if I had not been attracted by the beauty of your lovely niece? At these words, the good people burst out laughing. As I did not think that there was anything very comic in what I had said, I judged that my traveling companions were rather simple, and I was not sorry to find them so. Why do you laugh so heartily, beautiful Demigella? Is it to show me your fine teeth? I confess that I have never seen such a splendid set in Venice. Oh, it is not for that, sir, although everyone in Venice has paid me the same compliment. I can assure you that in P, all the girls have teeth as fine as mine. Is it not a fact, uncle? Yes, my dear niece. I was laughing, sir, at a thing which I will never tell you. Oh, tell me, I entreat you. Oh, certainly not, never. I will tell you myself, says the curate. You will not, she exclaims, knitting her beautiful eyebrows. If you do, I will go away. I defy you to do it, my dear. Do you know what she has said, sir? when she saw you on the wharf, 
Here is a very handsome young man who is looking at me, and would not be sorry to be with us. And when she saw that the gondoliers were putting back for you to embark, she was delighted. While the uncle was speaking to me, the indignant niece was slapping him on the shoulder. Why are you angry, lovely Christine, at my hearing that you liked my appearance, when I am so glad to let you know how truly charming I think you? Oh, you are glad for a moment. Oh, I know the Venetians thoroughly now. They have all told me that they were charmed with me, and not one of those I would have ever liked have ever made a declaration to me. Well, what sort of declaration do you, did you want? There was only one sort for me, sir, the declaration leading to a good marriage in church in the sight of all men. Yet we remained a fortnight in Venice, did we not, uncle? This girl, said the uncle, is a good match, for she possesses three thousand crowns. She has always said she would marry only a Venetian, and I have accompanied her to Venice to give her an opportunity of being known. A worthy woman gave us hospitality for a fortnight, and has presented my niece in several houses, where she made the acquaintance of marriageable young men. But those who pleased her would not hear of marriage, and those who would have been glad to marry her did not take her fancy. But do you imagine, reverend sir, that marriages can be made like omelettes? A fortnight in Venice? That is nothing. You ought to live there at least six months. Now, for instance, I think your niece sweetly pretty, and I should consider myself fortunate if the wife whom God intends for me were like her. But even if she offered me now a dowry of fifty thousand crowns, on condition that our wedding takes place immediately, I would refuse her. A prudent young man wants to know the character of a girl before he marries her, for it is neither money nor beauty which can assure happiness in married life. Well, what do you mean by character? asked Christine. Is it beautiful handwriting? No, my dear. I mean the qualities of the mind and the heart. I shall most likely get married sometime, and I have been looking for a wife for the last three years, but I am still looking in vain. I have known several young girls almost as lovely as you are, and all with a good marriage portion, but after an acquaintance of two or three months I found out that they could not make me happy. In what were they deficient? Well, I will tell you, because you are not acquainted with them, and there can be no indiscretion on my part. One, whom I certainly would have married, for I loved her dearly, was extremely vain. She would have ruined me in fashionable clothes, and by her love for luxuries. Fancy! She was in the habit of paying one sequin every month to the hairdresser, and at least as much for the pomatum and perfumes. She was a giddy and foolish girl. Now, I only spend ten soldi in a year on wax, which I mix with goat's grease, and there I have an excellent pomatum. Another, whom I would have married two years ago, labored under a disease which would have made me unhappy. As soon as I knew of it, I ceased my visits. Well, what disease was it? A disease which would have prevented her from being a mother, and if I get married, I wish to have children. All of that is in God's hands, but I know that my health is excellent, is it not, uncle? Another was too devout, and that does not suit me. She was so over-scrupulous that she was in the habit of going to her confessor twice a week, and every time her confession lasted at least one hour. I want my wife to be a good Christian, but not bigoted. 
she must have been a great sinner, or else she was very foolish. I confess only once a month, and get through everything in two minutes. Is it not true, uncle? And if you were to ask me any questions, uncle, I should not know what more to say. One young lady thought herself more learned than I, although she would every minute utter some absurdity. Another was always low-spirited, and my wife must be cheerful. Hark to that, uncle. You and my mother are always chiding me for my cheerfulness. Another, whom I did not court long, was always afraid of being alone with me, and if I gave her a kiss, she would run and tell her mother. How silly she must have been. I have never yet listened to a lover, for we have only rude peasants in P, but I know very well that there are some things which I would not tell my mother. One had a rank breath, another painted her face, and indeed almost every young girl is guilty of that fault. I am afraid marriage is out of the question for me, because I want, for instance, my wife to have black eyes, and in our days almost every woman colors them by art, but I cannot be deceived, for I am a good judge. Are, are mine black? You are laughing. I laugh because your eyes certainly appear to be black, but they are not so in reality. Never mind, you are very charming in spite of that. Now that is amusing. You pretend to be a good judge, yet you say my eyes are dyed black. My eyes, sir, whether beautiful or ugly, are now the same as God made them. Is it not so, uncle? I, I never had any doubt of it, my dear niece. And do you not believe me, sir? No. No, they are too beautiful for me to believe that they are natural. Oh, dear me, I cannot bear it. Excuse me, my lovely Damigella. I am afraid I have been too sincere. After that quarrel, we remained silent. The good curate smiled now and then, but his niece found it very hard to keep down her sorrow. At intervals, I stole a look at her face, and I could see that she was very near crying. I felt sorry, for she was a charming girl. In her hair, dressed in the fashion of wealthy countrywomen, she had more than one hundred sequins worth of gold pins and arrows which fastened the plates of her long locks as dark as ebony, heavy gold earrings and a long chain which was wound twenty times round her snowy neck, made a fine contrast to her complexion, on which the lilies and the roses were admirably blended. It was the first time that I had seen a country beauty in such splendid apparel. Six years before, Lucy, at Pezine had captivated me, but in a different manner. Christine did not utter a single word. She was in despair, for her eyes were truly of the greatest beauty, and I was cruel enough to attack them. She evidently hated me, and her anger alone kept back her tears. Yet I would not undeceive her, for I wanted her to bring matters to a climax. When the gondola had entered the long canal at Marghera, I asked the clergyman whether he had a carriage to go to Treviso, through which place he had to pass to reach P. I intended to walk, said the worthy man, for my parish is poor, and I am the same, but I will try to obtain a place for Christine in some carriage travelling that way. You would confer a real kindness on me if you would both accept a seat in my chaise. It holds four persons, and there is plenty of room. It is a good fortune which we were far from expecting. Not at all, uncle. I will not go with this gentleman. Well, why not, my dear niece? Because I will not. Such is the way, I remarked without looking at her, 
that sincerity is generally rewarded. Sincerity, sir, nothing of the sort, she exclaimed angrily. It is sheer wickedness. There can be no true black eyes now for you in the world. But, as you like them, I am very glad of it. You are mistaken, lovely Christine, for I have the means of ascertaining the truth. What means? Only to wash the eyes with a little lukewarm rose water, or, if the lady cries, the artificial color is certain to be washed off. At those words the scene changed as if by a wand of a conjurer. The face of the charming girl, which had expressed nothing but indignation, spite, and disdain, took an air of contentment and placidity delightful to witness. She smiled at her uncle, who was much pleased with the change in her countenance, for the offer of the carriage had gone to his heart. Now, you better cry a little, my dear niece, and Il Signore will render full justice to your eyes. Christine cried in reality, but it was immoderate laughter that made her tears flow. That species of natural originality pleased me greatly, and as we were going up the steps at the landing place, I offered her my full apologies. She accepted the carriage. I ordered breakfast, and told a vetturino to get a very handsome chaise ready while we had our meal but the curate said he must first of all go and say his mass. Very well, reverend sir, we will hear it, and you must say it for my intention. I put a silver ducat in his hand. It is what I am in the habit of giving, I observed. My generosity surprised him so much that he wanted to kiss my hand. We proceeded towards the church, and I offered my arm to the niece, who, not knowing whether she ought to accept it or not, said to me, Do you suppose that I cannot walk alone? I have no such idea, but if I do not give you my arm, people will think me wanting in politeness. Well, I will take it, but now that I have your arm, what will people think? Perhaps that we love each other, and that we make a very nice couple. And if anyone should inform your mistress that we are in love with each other, or even that you have given your arm to a young girl? I have no mistress, and I shall have none in future, because I cannot find a girl as pretty as you in all Venice. I am very sorry for you, for we cannot go again to Venice, and even if we could, how could we remain there six months? You said that six months was necessary to know a girl well. I would willingly defray all your expenses. Indeed, then say so to my uncle, and he will think it over, for I could not go alone. In six months you would know me likewise. Oh, I know you very well already. Could you accept a man like me? Why not? And will you love me? Yes, very much, when you are my husband. I looked at the young girl with astonishment. She seemed to me a princess in the disguise of a peasant girl. Her dress, made of gois de tour and all embroidered in gold, was very handsome, and cost certainly twice as much as the finest dress of a Venetian lady. Her bracelets, matching the neck chain, completed her rich toilet. She had the figure of a nymph and the new fashion of wearing a mantle not having yet reached her village. I could see her most magnificent bosom, although her dress was fastened up to the neck. The end of the richly embroidered skirt did not go lower than the ankles, which allowed me to admire the neatest little foot and the lower part of an exquisitely moulded leg. Her firm and easy walk, the natural freedom of all her movements, a charming look which seemed to say, I am very glad you think me pretty. Everything, in short, caused the ardent fire of amorous desires to circulate through my veins. 
I could not conceive how such a lovely girl could have spent a fortnight in Venice without finding a man to marry her, or to deceive her. I was particularly delighted with her simple, artless way of talking, which in the city might have been taken for silliness. Absorbed in my thoughts, and having resolved in my own mind on rendering brilliant homage to her charms, I waited impatiently for the end of the mass. After breakfast I had great difficulty in convincing the curate that my seat in the carriage was the last one, but I found it easier to persuade him on our arrival in Treviso to remain for dinner and for supper at a small, unfrequented inn, and I took all the expense upon myself. He accepted very willingly when I added that immediately after supper a carriage would be in readiness to convey him to P, where he would arrive in an hour after a pleasant journey by moonlight. He had nothing to hurry him on except his wish to say Mass in his own church the next morning. I ordered a fire and a good dinner, and the idea struck me that the curate himself might pledge the ring for me, and thus give me the opportunity of a short interview with his niece. I proposed it to him, saying I could not very well go myself, as I did not wish to be known. He undertook the commission at once, explaining his pleasure at doing something to oblige me. He left us, and I remained alone with Christine. I spent an hour with her without trying to give her even a kiss, although I was dying to do so, but I prepared her heart to burn with the same desires which were already burning in me by those words which so easily inflame the imagination of a young girl. The curate came back and returned me the ring, saying that it could not be pledged until the day after the morrow in consequence of the festival of the Holy Virgin. He had spoken to the cashier, who had stated that if I liked, the bank would lend me double the sum if I had asked. My dear sir, I said, you would greatly oblige me if you would come back here from P to pledge the ring yourself. Now that it had been offered once by you, it might look very strange if it were brought by another person. Of course I will pay all your expenses. Well, I promise you to come back. I hoped he would bring his niece with him. I was seated opposite to Christine during the dinner, and I discovered fresh charms in her every minute, but, fearing I might lose her confidence if I tried to obtain some slight favor, I made up my mind not to go to work too quickly, and to contrive that the curate should take her again to Venice. I thought that there only I could manage to bring love into play, and to give it the food it requires. "'Reverend Sir,' I said, "'let me advise you to take your niece again to Venice.' I undertake to defray all expenses and to find an honest woman with whom your Christine will be as safe as with her own mother. I want to know her well in order to make her my wife, and if she comes to Venice our marriage is certain. Sir, I will bring my niece myself to Venice as soon as you inform me that you have found a worthy woman with whom I can leave her in safety. While we were talking I kept looking at Christine, and I could see her smile with contentment. My dear Christine, I said, Within a week I shall have arranged the affair. In the meantime, I will write to you. I hope that you have no objection to correspond with me. My uncle will write for me, for I have never been taught writing. What? My dear child! You wish to become a wife of a Venetian, and you cannot write? Is it then necessary to know how to write in order to become a wife? I can read well. That is not enough, and although a girl can be a wife and a mother without knowing how to trace one letter... It is generally admitted that a young girl ought to be able to write. I wonder you never learned. There is no wonder in that, for not one girl in our village can do it. Ask my uncle. It is perfectly true, 
but there is not one who thinks of getting married in Venice, and as you wish for a Venetian husband, you must learn. Certainly, I said, and before you come to Venice, for everybody would laugh at you if you could not write. I see that it makes you sad, my dear, but it, it cannot be helped. I am sad because I cannot learn writing in a week. I undertake, said her uncle, to teach you in a fortnight, if you will only practice diligently. You will know enough to be able to improve by your own exertions. It is a great undertaking, but I accept it, and I promise to work night and day and to begin tomorrow. After dinner, I advised the priest not to leave that evening, to rest during the night, and I observed that, by going away before daybreak, he would reach P in good time, and feel all the better for it. I made the same proposal to him in the evening, and when he saw that his niece was sleepy, he was easily persuaded to remain. I called for the innkeeper, ordered a carriage for the clergyman, and desired that a fire might be lit for me in the next room, where I would sleep. But the good priest said it was unnecessary, because there were two large beds in our room, that one would be for me, and the other for him and his niece. We need not undress, he added, as we mean to leave very early. But you can take your clothes off, sir, because you are not going with us, and you would like to remain in bed tomorrow morning. Oh, remarked Christine, I must undress myself, otherwise I could not sleep, but I only want a few minutes to be ready in the morning. I said nothing, but I was amazed. Christine, then, lovely and charming enough to wreck the chastity of his Anacrates, would sleep naked with her uncle. True, he was old, devout, without any ideas which would render such a position dangerous, yet the priest was a man, he had evidently felt like all men, and he ought to have known the danger he was exposing himself to. My carnal-mindedness could not realize such a state of innocence. But it was truly innocent, so much so that he did it openly, and did not suppose that anyone could not see anything wrong in it. I saw it all plainly, but I was not accustomed to such things, and felt lost in wonderment. As I advanced in age and in experience, I have seen the same custom established in many countries amongst honest people, whose good morals were in no way debased by it. But it was amongst good people, and I could not pretend to belong to that worthy class. We had no meat for dinner, and my delicate palate was not over-satisfied. I went down to the kitchen myself, and I told the landlady that I wanted the best that could be procured in Treviso for supper, particularly in wines. If you do not mind the expense, sir, trust to me, and I will undertake to please you. I will give you some gata wine. All right, but let us have supper early. When I returned to our room, I found Christine caressing the cheeks of her old uncle, who was laughing. The good man was seventy-five years old. Do you know what is the matter? he said to me. My niece is caressing me because she wants to leave me here until my return. She tells me that you are like brother and sister during the hour you spent alone together this morning, and I believe it, but she does not consider that she would be a great trouble to you. Well, not at all, quite the reverse. She will afford me great pleasure, for I think her very charming. As to our mutual behavior, I believe you can trust both of us to do our duty. I have no doubt of it. Well, I will leave her under your care until the day after tomorrow. I will come back early in the morning so as to attend to your business. This extraordinary and unexpected arrangement caused the blood to rush to my head with such a violence that my nose bled profusely for the quarter of an hour. It did not frighten me, because I was used to such accidents, 
but the good priest was in a great fright, thinking that it was a serious hemorrhage. When I had allayed his anxiety, he left us on some business of his own, saying that he would return at nightfall. I remained alone with the charming, artless Christine, and lost no time in thanking her for the confidence she placed in me. I can assure you, she said, that I wished you to have a thorough knowledge of me. You will see that I have none of the faults which have displeased you so much in the young ladies you have known in Venice, and I promise to learn writing immediately. You are charming and true, but you must be discreet in P, and confide to no one that we have entered into an agreement with each other. You must act according to your uncle's instructions, for it is to him that I intend to write to make all arrangements. You may rely on my discretion. I will not say anything, even to my own mother, until you give me permission to do so. I passed the afternoon in denying myself even the slightest liberties with my lovely companion, but falling every minute deeper in love with her. I told her a few love stories, which I veiled sufficiently not to shock her modesty. She felt interested, and I could see that, although she did not always understand, she pretended to do so, in order not to appear ignorant. When her uncle returned, I had arranged everything in my mind to make her my wife, and I resolved on placing her, during her stay in Venice, in the house of the same honest widow with whom I had found a lodging for my beautiful Countess A. S. We had a delicious supper. I had to teach Christine how to eat oysters and truffles, which she then saw for the first time. Gata wine is like champagne. It causes merriment without intoxicating but it cannot be kept for more than one year. We went to bed before midnight, and it was broad daylight when I awoke. The curate had left the room so quietly that I had not heard him. I looked towards the other bed. Christine was asleep. I wished her good morning. She opened her eyes, and leaning on her elbow, she smiled sweetly. My uncle is gone. I did not hear him. Dearest Christine, you are as lovely as one of God's angels. I have a great longing to give you a kiss." If you long for a kiss, my dear friend, come and give me one. I jump out of bed. Decency makes her hide her face. It was cold, and I was in love. I find myself in her arms by one of those spontaneous movements which sentiment alone can cause, and we belong to each other without having thought of it. She, happy and rather confused, I, delighted, yet unable to realize the truth of a victory won without any contest. An hour passed in the mist of happiness, during which we forgot the whole world. Calm followed the stormy gusts of passionate love, and we gazed at each other without speaking. Christine was the first to break the silence. "'What have we done?' she said softly and lovingly. "'We have become husband and wife.' "'What will my uncle say to-morrow?' "'He need not know anything about it until he gives us the nuptial benediction in his own church.' "'And when will he do so?' as soon as we have completed all the arrangements necessary for a public marriage. How long will that be? About a month. We cannot be married during Lent. I will obtain permission. You are not deceiving me? No, for, for I adore you. Then you no longer want to know me better? No, I know you thoroughly now, and I feel certain that you will make me happy. And will you make me happy too? I hope so. Let us go up and go to church. Who could have believed that, to get a husband, it was necessary not to go to Venice, but to come back from that city? We got up, and after partaking of some breakfast, we went to hear Mass. The morning passed off quickly, 
but towards dinner-time I thought that Christine looked different to what she did the day before, and I asked her the reason of that change. It must be, she said, the same reason which causes you to be thoughtful. An air of thoughtfulness, my dear, is proper to love when it finds itself in consultation with honor. This affair has become serious, and love is now compelled to think and consider. We want to be married in the church, and we cannot do it before Lent, now that we are in the last days of Carnival. Yet we cannot wait until Easter. It would be too long. We must, therefore, obtain a dispensation in order to be married. Have I not reason to be thoughtful? Her only answer was to come and kiss me tenderly. I had spoken the truth, yet I had not told her all my reasons for being so pensive. I found myself drawn into an engagement which was not disagreeable to me, but I wished it had not been so very pressing. I could not conceal from myself that repentance was beginning to creep into my amorous and well-disposed mind, and I was grieved at it. I felt certain, however, that the charming girl would never have any cause to reproach me for her misery. We had the whole evening before us, and as she had told me that she had never gone to a theatre, I resolved on affording her that pleasure. I sent for a Jew, with whom I procured everything necessary to disguise her, and we went to the theatre. A man in love enjoys no pleasure but that which he gives to the woman he loves. After the performance was over, I took her to the casino, and her astonishment made me laugh when she saw for the first time a faro bank. I had not enough money to play myself, but I had more than enough to amuse her and to let her play a reasonable game. I gave her ten sequins and explained what she had to do. She did not even know the cards, yet in less than an hour she had won one hundred sequins. I made her leave off playing, and we returned to the inn. When we were in our room, I told her how much money she had, and when I assured her that all the gold belonged to her, she thought it was a dream. Oh, what will my uncle say? she exclaimed. We had a light supper, and spent a delightful night, taking good care to part by daybreak, so as not to be caught in the same bed by the worthy ecclesiastic. He arrived early, and found us sleeping soundly in our respective beds. He woke me, and I gave him the ring, which he went to pledge immediately. When he returned two hours later, he saw us dressed and talking quietly near the fire. As soon as he came in, Christine rushed to embrace him, and she showed him all the gold she had in her possession. What a pleasant surprise for the good old priest! He did not know how to express his wonder. He thanked God for what he called a miracle, and he concluded by saying that we were made to ensure each other's happiness. End of chapter 19, part 1